Today we are continuing in our summer series, The One Size Fits None. This, this series that's all about the idea that a one size fits all approach to our faith is not going to work. So what works for you to receive and to show God love is not necessarily going to be the same thing that the people around you connect with. So we are exploring all these different ways that we can connect to God so that we can reinforce what we do well, but also encourage those around us who it may be a little bit different. And so we've looked at a couple of these so far. I mentioned the naturalist, which we looked at on the first week. This was connecting to God through the outdoors and through nature. Then we looked at the caregiver, which was loving God through loving others. Then we had the ascetic, which was loving God through silence and solitude. And the contemplative. I love that how people pronounce that one is all funky. It's great. Um, The contemplative, which is loving God through adoration. And last week, Jeremy took us through the sensate, which is loving God with all of our senses. Today, we are going to be looking at the enthusiast, okay? The enthusiast. And this is loving God with mystery and celebration. And as a heads up for you, this is one that I have for the last 25 years of of understanding all of these things always scored pretty high on. So I get really, really excited about this, and I'm probably going to be enthusiastic about it. So um, the two words that really do summarize and, and, and really hit, if you want to describe the enthusiast, are mystery and celebration. Mystery and celebration. As we look at the enthusiast, we have to keep these two words in mind at all times because um, what I've understood as I've learned about the enthusiast, is this is probably one of the more controversial pathways of connecting to God because it has this ability to um, feel showy for some or feel like a stretch for others. It can, you see people who are enthusiasts and, and you could judge them or they could judge back. It can become very, very funky when we look at this way of connecting to God. And we really got a good picture of that when we were listening to the Word of God read by Colin in the book of First Chronicles when we have this story, and I'd love to look at this story together because it's just a fascinating story to me. If you have your Bibles with you, I'd love for you to turn to First Chronicles uh, chapter 15 with me, and we're going to look at a story about when King David brings the Ark of the Covenant back to Jerusalem. Now, as you're turning there, um, let me just kind of set this up for you a little bit. When we talk about mystery and celebration, this idea of uh, of what the enthusiast is, we're going to unpack that. But you should understand that King David, who we're looking at, is definitely an enthusiast, okay? This is, he connects to God in many different ways, but this one is definitely in his wheelhouse. And if you aren't familiar with his story or know nothing about him, David is simply, uh, he was a young shepherd who basically loved to play music in the fields and watch his sheep. That's what he did. And then he became king of Israel many years later and never lost his love for music, continued to play music all the time, continued to foster musical environments, and he loved celebration. There was always a party to throw in David's house. There's always a reason to do it. And he cared for those around him like they were a sheep. He never lost that shepherding care. But when, when King David takes over as king, things are a hot mess in the nation. The nation's kind of divided a little bit. He's got to bring them back together. And as he does that, there's one, um, we'll just call it piece of furniture, if you will, for lack of better terms. But there's one thing that's really important, this symbol that is the Ark of the Covenant. And it's, it's the most important symbol in all of Israel. And what King David says is, we've got to find this Ark and we need to bring it 
back to Jerusalem. We need a place for this to call home in the capital city. And so in 1 Chronicles chapter 13, two chapters before what Colin read for us, we have um, King David who gathers a bunch of people because they found the ark and it's about eight miles or so away. And so he's like, okay, we're going to go get it and we're going to bring it back. And, and that's what he's going to do. He's really, really excited about this. And in 1 Chronicles chapter 13, verse 8, this is what we read. I, I love this about David. David and all Israel were celebrating before God with all their might, singing songs and playing all kinds of musical instruments, lyres and harps and tambourines, cymbals and trumpets. You know, they got like real celebration going on, don't they? They, this is like, I mean, it's not like, oh, just play the nice little thing. No, you've got trumpets and simple, I mean, it's like a ska breakout of worship. And if you don't know what that is, you were, missed the 90s, it was okay. Um, but they are doing this all the way from where they picked up the ark to about eight miles to Jerusalem. They start to do this, and for eight miles, they are playing music. They are dancing. They are singing. And, and then all of a sudden, something happens. There's an oxen that's pulling a cart that the Ark of the Covenant was placed on. And this, this oxen trips. As it trips, the Ark begins to tip. As the Ark begins to tip, this man named Uzzah reaches out. And he was one of the ones who's meant to protect the, the Ark itself and this cart. He reaches out to stabilize the Ark and dies immediately. He reaches out to touch the Ark to stabilize it and he dies. Now, here's the deal. King David was pumped to bring the ark back home. And he had the right people around the ark to do this. But what he failed to do was to read and to apply all of the commands that God had given about moving this ark. You see, it was never supposed to be put on any sort of cart whatsoever. It was supposed to be carried on poles by these guys called the Levites, and, and they would lift the poles together, walk in unison so that nothing happened, and multiple people carried it, so if someone tripped, it wasn't going to fall or do anything. But the most important rule about the ark that David failed to take into account was you can never touch the ark or you will die. It is that holy. And so you need to remember this as we look at the enthusiasts, that, that there could be party and there could be celebration, but one of the biggest mistakes an enthusiast might make is neglecting the actual foundational promises and instructions in the Word of God and leaning towards what works or feels good in a moment. And an experience can dictate theology instead of Scripture starting there. And God has a great plan. So David's, David's kind of freaked out, okay? And this is a very funky moment. He, he freaks out because Uzzah has died, and now he's like, okay, um, I'm not bringing this home. This, this is not coming home yet. So he, he drops it off at one of his friend's house, and his, uh, his friend named Obed-Edom, and he drops it there, and it's a couple miles away, and he's in awe of this mysterious power of God. I am not bringing this home until I can figure out how we do this. So he drops it off at the, his friend's house, and he goes, and for like three months... He studies and prepares and wants to make sure he does this right. So he reads, he gets it all down, and then he gathers everyone who wants to come. Now remember, you just partied the first time and then someone died. It's like, hey, who wants a round two? Eh, I don't know. But everybody is kind of jumping in. But check out what he does in chapter 15. Three months later, in verse 2, it says, Then he commanded... They get to the ark. No one except the Levites may carry the ark of God. The Lord has chosen them to carry the ark of the Lord and serve him forever. 
You think he's messing around this time? I don't. I think he knew what happened and it cost someone's life. And he's like, we are going to do this by the book. And he's got everyone set up in the right spots. The priests, they're sacrificing stuff the whole way. The Levites, they are carrying the ark. The people guarding the, the, there's people now guarding the Levites so that they don't trip and no one causes them to trip. Um, David is being so absurdly careful about all the things that God has set up. Does this mean that there's no longer a party because you got to follow the rules? Does this mean that you can't celebrate the mystery of God and you can't celebrate in worship and, and with the, the, all the instruments? Not at all. Actually, when we read this, we read that the, the party that they threw as they were obeying God's law and doing it right was even better than the last one. This time, he actually takes and read that he assigned the best musicians in all of Israel to lead all the people who wanted to come for the ark to come together and lead them in worship. So before he had people worshiping and with instruments, now he's got the top leaders leading everybody so that everyone's in worship. Verse 28 tells us that, so all Israel brought up the ark of the Lord's covenant with shouts of joy, the blowing of of ram's horns and trumpets, the clashing of cymbals, and the loud playing on harps and lyres. Following God's law actually made this a louder and even more celebratory moment than before. It didn't hinder it. It made it better. And and you want to know where King David is in all of this party? He's right in the middle of everything. Verse 29 says, But as the ark of the Lord's covenant entered the city of David, Michael, the daughter of Saul, looked down from her window when she saw King David skipping about and laughing with joy. She was filled with with contempt for him. David's wife, who I am positive, knew the story of Uzzah from when David went out the first time. It's probably like, so where's the ark? I dropped it at, you know, Obed-Edom's house. Why? Uzzah died. Here's what happened. And now, could you imagine being in a relationship where where David says, I'm going to go back and get it again. Would you not be worried for your your partner or your spouse at that moment? There'd be some concern, I would think. And so I, I just imagine that as they're coming, she hears the procession, she hears the parade, and with this hope, maybe she leans out the window, I hope he's okay, I hope he's okay. And what does she see? Maybe your translation says she sees that he was dancing and celebrating. That's what most of the translations say. But the Hebrew words that are used here for dancing and celebrating are so much more specific than that. He's jumping around and laughing with joy like a little kid. He's giddy. He's a giddy little kid. And, and so what does Michael see? She sees her husband acting like a kid, not a king. And it fills her with contempt. It, it, it helps her come to this place now where I remember what my king father did, King Saul. She looks at David and she despises him. She looks down on him. David, however, he continues to celebrate. He doesn't know what's going on upstairs with Michael looking out the window. And, and he now brings all of Israel, all of Jerusalem that's been waiting for the ark. They set the ark up and he's like, guys, let's party by eating together. So he gives everyone food in the city to celebrate. They celebrate for a, a couple hours more. Something awesome has happened and we should do this. And then he sends everybody home with food. They go home with food. And in, in First Chronicles, we don't necessarily finish, see the finished story here. But in 2 Samuel, we have the same story that's written down in some amazing details that are here. And 2 Samuel 6 tells us what happens when David 
the last to leave this party when he goes home. In 2 Samuel 6, chapter, or verse 20, it says this in the first part of verse 20. When David returned home to bless his own family, Michael, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet him. Imagine David has had the best, one of the best moments in his life. The ark has returned. And you're ready to go home. Have you ever been in that place where something awesome happens and you cannot wait to get home to tell somebody? You just have to tell your best friend. You've got to tell them what's going on. And, and then you, if, if you're married, you know that moment when you come and, and your spouse is waiting at the door. This could be really good or really bad. <laughs> right? Celebratory or uh-oh. And, and I don't know what David's feel was, but he's excited kind of coming in. What do you do when you see Michael and you're like, oh, she's here. But you know that look on a face that you know, oh, you're not, you're not out here to give me a hug and greet me. Something happened. Something happened. Obviously, they didn't have the same type of day. In the second half of that verse, it says, she said in disgust, how distinguished the king of Israel looks today, shamelessly exposing himself to the servant girls like any vulgar person might do. You want to talk about taking the winds out of someone's sails, completely deflating them. She just lights him up. First thing she says, not, uh, you know, hey, welcome home, how was your day? Or, wow, it's great to see you, you look so happy. Or, oh, the, 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 the nation seems really cool, they're, they're pumped. It's, you look nothing like a king today. You look nothing like the man you're supposed to be in the role that you're supposed to have. You are an embarrassment to the entire nation by the way that you behave today. How would you handle it if that was said to you? How would you respond to that? Look what David says in response in verse 21. So David retorted, I like this, he responds right away. He's not waiting. This is an immediate response. He says to Michael, I was dancing before the Lord who chose me above your father and all his family. He appointed me as the leader of Israel the people of the Lord. So I celebrate before the Lord. Yes, I am willing to look even more foolish than this, even be humiliated in my own eyes. But those servant girls you mentioned will indeed think I am distinguished. David hears her. David doesn't blow her off. He hears what she said, but he pushes back because he's like, your focus is in the completely wrong place, hon. You're way off. You're worried about how I look before people. I'm not worried about, I'm worried about and concerned with how I'm relating to God. I'm overwhelmed by the mystery of God and the celebration of God. The ark is here, like we're here, and he's celebrating God's mysterious plan. You get that in the beginning when he says, God chose me over your family. Everybody in your family, God put me here. Do you know how many times David questions if he should be king up to this moment? He's like, why me, why me, why me? And now he's in this place where he's had the privilege of bringing the symbol of God's power back into Jerusalem. And he's like, oh my God, you're so great. And who am I to do this? Your plan makes no sense to me. But I'm going to praise you. I'm going to give you all that I have. And this is what he does. And he's like, how could God's favor be on me? You're missing that God is up to something amazing that we can't see. You're worried about how I look before people. Do you understand how big God is? And so all this jumping, dancing, giddiness, it was not meant to earn the favor of people. It was a natural, joyful, and pure response to the goodness and character of God. And if there was a way to express it even more, he says, I'll do that. 
I'll do anything. Even if it means embarrassing myself, I'll go for it. If it helps me, praise God all the more. You see, David was an enthusiast. He was someone who connected to God through this mystery of who, he was, who God is, and at the same time, the celebration and partying of who he is. Michael missed it because she didn't understand what was going on with David or God as she judged him. She judged his intentions afar from a window. It's funny because she sounds just like the Pharisees in the New Testament passage that Colin had read for us from Luke chapter 19. You see, in this, this story that we read, Jesus is entering into the city of Jerusalem, the same city that this ark was entering into with a procession and parade. Jesus is entering in on a donkey. And this is what we would call the beginning of uh, Passion Week. This is a moment where the city of Jerusalem swells because it's the Passover festival. And, in, and instead of the ark being celebrated, the Savior, Jesus, is coming into the city and he is being celebrated. People are um, making a path for him. It's more full than, it's, than normal because of the Passover festival. It, the city has swelled with people. And as Jesus comes in, they're, they're like making way for him and putting cloaks on their clothes on the ground so that the donkey doesn't have to walk on the dirt. And they take branches from the trees around and they're putting them on the ground for sturdy walking. And, and now all these people are celebrating and they're using scripture as their grounding from Isaiah. And they start to praise Jesus for all the mysterious and wild miracles that he's been doing, saying, this is amazing. This is what we've been waiting for. And it's wild because the Pharisees see this. And if you don't know what a Pharisee is, they're simply the professional religious leaders of Jerusalem. They were the ones who had most authority and most control. They reprimand Jesus in the same exact way that Michael reprimanded David. Check out what they say in verse 39. Some of the Pharisees among the crowd said, Teacher, rebuke your followers for saying things like that. You see, they missed everything, didn't they? They missed it. And what does Jesus respond with in verse 40? If they kept quiet, the stones along the road would burst into cheers. How cool is that? God is so amazing. God is so mysterious, so wonderful, so outside of, of my understanding that if all of humanity stopped praising him, it would not stop him from being celebrated. All of creation would erupt in praise to God. Now, you, you might be someone who's like, oh, that's a metaphor. Jesus doesn't really mean that. That's fine if you think that. I don't think he means that. I think he means what he says here. I think that creation will literally explode if we shut up. I think that creation is waiting and screaming about who God is because it's been created through Jesus in his image. And if that sounds crazy to you, and you, you're like, oh my gosh, how, I've got a hundred questions. How could that even be possible? Rocks don't have vocal cords. And, you know, trees, what are they going to... Listen, I don't have to have a reason to believe this. Do you know why? Because my God that I worship is far outside my understanding. He's so mysterious, so wonderful, so big that I'm kind of glad I don't have to have an answer for why stones can shout. I just think that they will. If you think I'm crazy for that, I'm totally cool with it. People have thought a lot worse things about me. And how does it all work? That's not really my problem. I'm not a creator. I'm not the creator. So, 
I will just sit and understand that my God works in mighty, amazing, and mysterious ways. I believe at the same time that our God is a God of order. That, that he's given a structure. That the entire earth runs on this and it's beautiful. But there's so much more about who he is and how he works that I don't understand. And we, we're never going to have answers for why some things happen. That's really frustrating. Welcome to pursuing Jesus. But for the enthusiast, that's not as frustrating as you think. It actually doesn't frustrate them as much as it excites them. Do you know why? Because they don't have to have an answer for why that thing happened. They're expecting that if this happened, God's going to do something. God's going to redeem this in some way. And there's this sense of excitement where, where enthusiasts begin to wonder, what is God up to? What's he going to do? Some people see that as ignorance. Some people see that as you're neglecting to acknowledge the bad things that happen. It's like, no, 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 I acknowledge the things that happen. But I believe that my God is bigger than those things. This is the heart of the enthusiast. It revolves around mystery. It revolves around celebration. And if this is a pathway that you connect with, I'd like to really quickly look at some of the ways that you can lean into this, like David, like Jesus, um, and, and then as well, because this could be a bit funky, just some things to be very cautious of, some things to be wary of. And, and I think it's easier for us to look at celebration first, because we understand celebration pretty well. I think that we get this. It's easier for us to understand. Um, celebration, we know that this means you're highlighting some moment or some person, and you're bringing attention to something that they've done, right? Celebrations are meant to be joyous, um, and celebrations are best when other people are celebrating with you. And, and because of this, enthusiasts tend to be, it's not a everyone is, but enthusiasts tend to be more relational. They're more relational oriented. Well, um, the aesthetic that Becky talked about likes to be alone. The enthusiast usually wants people around, right? The more people, the better. Maybe the best way to describe this is it's summed up by a great group of philosophers um, from Jersey City, right here in New Jersey. Um, and this group, uh, they got together about 1960, and they gave voice to this idea in 1980. I, I've seen many people embrace this philosophy. They sing to it. They dance to it. Uh, just look at how cool in the gang sum this up, will you? This, these philosophers say, celebrate good times. Come on, let's celebrate. There's a party going on right here, a celebration to last throughout the years. So bring your good times and your laughter too. We're going to celebrate your party with you. Come on. There we go. We're, we're going to celebrate and have a good time. You see, here's what's funny about this. It's like, wait, philosophers from Jersey City, cool in the gang? Oh, most our musicians are great philosophers. They're talking about things that, that we need, and they tell us what we don't know sometimes, but we need to know it. Um, I see some of you, you're just singing it in your head. You want to sing it, and you're not. But it's there, isn't it? There's something in you. Just so you know, let me tell you, you all know how to celebrate. You do all know how to have a good time. I've done enough weddings where I've seen people whose butts are glued to chairs almost the entire night, and cool and the gang comes on right here, and grandma gets up to dance in a way that she has not before. And you're like, oh, she's getting it. Like, 
look at her, she's getting down. And, and, and people begin to dance like idiots when this comes on, and they sing, and they're going. And I always watch the bride and the groom in these moments. Do you know what they're doing? They're grinning from ear to ear as the people that they've invited to celebrate a union begin to celebrate through dancing and singing. Are they singing about the union? And like, your ceremony was awesome! No! But they're coming together to say, we're going to celebrate with our laughter, with our joy, that something is happening. We're going to party with you because this is worth celebrating. In that moment, celebration is expressed through music, through dancing. It's the same feeling that many enthusiasts experience when they celebrate God, and this is one of the keys, through enthusiastic music. Enthusiastic music is a key to them. I think this is what King David was experiencing in First Chronicles that we read, and what so many in the early church that we read in Acts, they experienced this type of worship. I know this is a huge part of the way that I connect to God. I've told Pastor Will on numerous Sundays, listen, I, I feel like we should just skip the message and we need to keep singing. I feel like we need to skip that time and just keep worshiping God. Not because I think, oh, that message stinks, it's going to bomb, or uh, I don't care about the word of God at all. I deeply care. But because I cannot seem to get enough of praising God through music. I just, I cannot get enough of it. And when we're all together, um, I often, you'll see this now, I'm going to break the glass for you, but I almost always find myself up front. And I find myself up front because um, I'm really easily distracted by other people. And I don't want to know how someone else is worshiping or if they're engaging in the music or whatever. I need to just stay focused on God and I need like a arm's width of length because I'm a very expressive person. And you may sit there and look at me during worship and be like, oh man, he's just showing off. Or oh man, he's all jumpy and bubbly or he's clapping and no one else is. Who cares? I just don't care. I don't care. And if there's something else I can do to worship God, I'm going to do that. If you're close enough to me, I apologize for my voice that you will hear because I will crack all the time. Because when my voice gets that high, I don't know how to sing. But when I give it my all, it just happens. And I think Jesus grins. I think he's so pleased by every like prepubescent squeak that I give when I hit that high and he's like, oh man, I love you. I love this because he desires to be praised. And just so you know, when I worship in my car, I don't worship to the same style of music that we sing here. It does look a little bit different. If you've driven in the car with me, you know what I mean. Um, it's usually going to be some of the songs that we sing, but done to a more either funk hip-hop or metal arrangement but i get just as expressive in my car because i cannot get enough of praising god and i want to feel it i want to understand it enthusiasts they can be quick to to like want to do more music when we're together and scrap the rest of the service like we should just have this space open to worship god and 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 you got to understand if you're an enthusiast, not everyone experiences God this way. You do, and that is awesome, and you should enjoy that, but not everyone's going to be there. They're not fueled the same way. So you got to be careful not to look back and be like, oh, well, they're not worshiping because they're just sitting down with their Bible open. No, no, no. They, they could be grounding a song in Scripture. That's, that's a good thing. Don't mistake your expressiveness or someone else's lack of expression as the heart of worship. You do what you do to connect with God and let it be felt, let it be seen. This is one of those areas we really have to have caution for. Just like David didn't follow the full law and someone died for it, 
I think that all of our excitement, all of our enjoyment of when we sing in the enthusiastic worship has to be rooted in Scripture. There are many times we're up here, or you guys are up here leading us. I'm sitting there, and I'll turn back, pull out my Bible, and reference in Scripture where we're singing this song to remind myself of the goodness and the grounding of this song in Scripture, and it makes it come alive to me. It doesn't pull away from the enjoyment of it. We have to be steeped as enthusiasts in our understanding and in our reverence towards God and never lose that. This is the one of the reasons that, that we have worship nights at Crossbridge. This is one of the reasons we do that is we understand that a whole night can be dedicated to celebrating God through music, through prayer, through anticipation. Our next worship night is um, August 12th. I think, you know, Becky, you mentioned that. We are going to be here. We're going to be worshiping. We will not have some ark to celebrate around. Um, but I will tell you this, it will be amazing. It will be lively. It will be fun. It will be full. My son and I actually had a, a father-son trip planned. And when we realized that it conflicted with this night, we changed a date. We like canceled part of it because we're not going to miss this. We're not missing this. I missed the last one in March and it felt like I missed out on an opportunity of connecting together with God. Just go ahead, take your phones out, put this date on your calendar right now. Just put it on there. And if you're like, oh, well, I don't really like all the music and the stuff. Cool, just sit in the back and enjoy. Sit in the back and listen. Sit in the back with your Bible. There's something to this. And, and celebration, I should tell you, is expressed in more than just music, though. Um, it's easy to see it that way, but celebration can be expressed through creating. Okay, through creating. The Bible starts and ends with the story of God creating all things and creating new things. We are created in the image of God, who is a creator, and so therefore I think that God's created us to be creative. God has created you and me to be creative people. There is something in us that comes alive when we create, whether it's through things like painting or sculpting, woodworking, dance, writing. I mean, it could be different things like, like storytelling or an athletic ability that you have and a skill. It could be gardening, photography, videography, some sort of thing that, that when you do this, you feel like, oh, you're creating something and bringing it into the world that is worthy, and God could be praised in that. I think we could, we should, and we need to all be stepping into what it means to be creating things. This is what an enthusiast does when they connect to God and celebrate and, and I will say it quickly again, just because I already said it a second ago, but just to reinforce it. When it comes to celebration and this idea of celebrating, it happens by just getting together sometimes. Just getting together is what some enthusiasts need, um, just being together with other people. Sometimes this is what fuels you to be with God. Um, it makes some of the other practices of your faith easier, right? An aesthetic, I told you, they want to be alone. They might find their best time alone praying while no one's around, if you're an enthusiast, you're like, that sounds like a nightmare, but a prayer meeting? I'll be there every day. How many people are coming? We'll do this together. Maybe some of you, while you soap through scripture with us, which is how we read scripture together, and, and you're thinking, I want to do this alone by myself with my guide, and then maybe like three other commentaries to make this better, and that is your time, and that's great. Others of you are thinking, like, I, I don't really like soaping by myself. I love it when I get to do this in my life group. And on Wednesday nights, at our Wednesday night time, I like that better being with people than I like doing it alone. Does God say that you have to do everything alone? No, not at all. And so for the enthusiasts, you want to be with people. That's a great thing. 
If you find yourself struggling with prayer, struggling with worship, struggling with reading scripture or serving, you may not want to serve alone, but you could find three or four people and say, can we go do this thing together? And it's like, yes, great. You are connecting to your love of God and celebrating. You just celebrate better when you're with people. But you have to be very careful as an enthusiast not to let community be your only way of connecting to God. You see, King David knew how to celebrate with people, but most of the Psalms that we read that are heart-wrenching, that are so introspective, were born out of his time alone. That he, he knew what it was like to connect to God outside of people, but he knew how to celebrate when he was with them. And there has to be somewhat of a balance. And the same warning would go for the, those who love being alone and you're like, that's it, you need to find yourself in community because it'll become toxic if you're alone, just like it would become completely toxic for people just to be with people. Jesus did this, he celebrated with weddings, with his uh, disciples, but he also cultivated this alone time with God so that he knew what his father wanted. So that's, that's the celebration side. Let's quickly look at the mystery side. And this is a little more um, mysterious, but God is mysterious, right? He moves in mysterious ways. And while scripture tells us so much about him, there's a lot of unexplainable things about why he does, unexplainable things about things that he does and why he does them. This is the stuff that fuels us as enthusiasts. Under, under this umbrella of mystery, enthusiasts have this great sense of expectancy. They expect that God is up to something. They want to see him move. And they need this expectancy in their faith. And they find super structured environments quite difficult to be a part of. I, have, I know this because on a Sunday morning, from those who are super enthusiasts, they're like, I wish that our Sunday mornings would look more like our worship nights. We just go, and then if the Holy Spirit's leading, we just follow him wherever he goes because we shouldn't have any structure to a Sunday morning. And it's like, wow, I, I feel what you feel. And then I have other people, we'll talk about this next week with our traditionals, who are like, yes, but the structure keeps us grounded. The structure does this. And I'm like, oh, I love that too. And, and I do connect there. But you have like this expectation that if we have structure, God can't move. And so... These type of environments can be a little bit frustrating for the enthusiast because they're thinking, well, there's no space for God to move. I mean, if you, if you just do three songs and this and that, like, there's no routine in that. Listen, um, the structure we have for a Sunday morning is built to reach all people who connect in different pathways, aren't they? It's designed with the whole community in mind. And so this, there's space for enthusiastic worship in addition to elements of routine, tradition. And I think it's great if we can, to have, as enthusiasts, cultivate some expectation into your Monday through Saturday and just don't expect it on Sunday. It should be here and present in our time together, but what's happening Monday through Saturday? I mean, have, have you asked God when you wake up and you're like, who is it that you can put in front of me today? Like, help me pay attention to share your word with someone, to give hope to someone, right? You, you can wake up and think, Lord, Give me somebody today to, to, to bless. And if you're sitting here thinking right now, like you, you can't wake up and expect that God's gonna move like that every day. Like that's not, that's not a good way to live life. God does those things occasionally, not all the time. You have to cultivate relationship with people. You can't just go and meet someone randomly and share the gospel with them. It has to be just the right moment. How many just right moments have we all missed because we're waiting for something better? Right? Fear, complacency, being lukewarm is no less a sin than presumption or expectancy. We have to be very careful that you look and say, well, God doesn't do that. Yes, how do you know? He can. And this sense of expectancy that enthusiasts feel is always fueled through prayer. Enthusiasts need pockets of prayer. 
They need pockets. And when they pray, especially in groups, you know what I'm saying if you've prayed with people who have a sense of expectancy when they pray. They pray boldly. They pray confidently. They pray for miracles. And we're told in Scripture by God to come to Him boldly. And enthusiasts are like, sweet, let's do it. And they pray bold. And the problem for us as enthusiasts isn't to pray boldly, but it's when we lay our request before God and He answers with no or does not answer. We have to learn how to wrestle with unanswered prayers, enthusiasts, because we want the big thing. We want the expect, we expect it, right? But learning to handle unanswered prayers is part of a maturing faith in Jesus. For the enthusiast, we have to know that God will say no to things. And, and it's not because it's like, oh, we've done something wrong. There must be sin in the way or, or start calling people out on the things that are wrong of why God didn't answer because we can do that as enthusiasts. We could say, this didn't happen because and start giving reason. It's like, God doesn't need a reason not to or to do something. He does not need our permission to be present. He loves when he's welcomed and he asks us to pray boldly, but it's really on his shoulders, not ours, when it comes to his movements. And because of that, enthusiasts expect answered prayer, which is expectancy is great. But the shadow side to that is it's really hard for us to pray for things over a long period of time. We kind of lose passion when we don't see things being answered. We're like, maybe God just doesn't care about that. Let's move on to something that, that we can pray for right now because that's exciting and maybe God will move. And we kind of, we don't, we don't pray the long haul. And Jesus very clearly tells us this is how sometimes God wants us to be praying over things is the long haul, to labor over it. So we get better with that as our faith matures. And, and finally, the enthusiasts are going to lean into mystery through dreams and through visions. Through dreams and through visions. I know that this might sound very, very weird to some people right now who are listening. But if you follow Jesus and you faithfully read the scriptures, you will see that all the way from Genesis through Revelation, God has a very clear pattern and habit of speaking to people through dreams and visions. And when I say visions, I'm talking about divine messages that God gives that, that are just like dreams, but we're awake and it's in a time of prayer rather than we're sleeping. And I will be totally honest. I believe that God does this today. I believe it 100% that God still does this today. You might think I'm crazy. I'm cool with that but I do grieve for the church because I believe that we've written this idea off, especially in the American church, and we've said God doesn't do this anymore, and we've missed out on some of the most amazing, amazing moments with God. And, and honestly, I have some of the best conversations about dreams, do you know, with my friends, my friends who are Muslim. They have such a high value for their dreams and their faith that they, they, they hold them in such high regard and are very confused when they see Christians who go, but you write them off like they're nothing. Doesn't God speak in the scriptures that way? And it's like, yeah, but not anymore. We're missing out. And if you think this doesn't happen anymore, because maybe you've never experienced it, my one question to you would be, have you asked for it? Have you asked God to give you dreams and visions? Because he says that he's going to, right? In, in the prophet Joel, I lean on this all the time. Chapter 2, verse 28, he says, Then after doing all those things, I will pour out my spirit upon all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy, your old men will dream dreams, and your young men will see visions. I personally have been getting a lot of dreams lately. 
which now puts me in the old men category. <laughs> I'll receive it in Jesus' name. For real, I, I think that God has so much to say to you and I, but our daily lives are so stinking busy that we give no time for pause for God to speak. And finally, when we go to bed, if we've not blue-screened our eyes out and consumed stuff to write when we go to bed, that's the only time our brains actually rest. And God's like, oh, good. Oh, good. I've missed you. And when we're sleeping, he can finally break in. Try to get something across. Now, now, does this mean that every time you have a dream, it's God trying to break in? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. Which is why we need to take dreams and visions, I believe, very, very seriously and try to discern what is God saying? What is he, what is he trying to do? This? Is this from God or is this from Taco Bell? Is this, is this the Holy Spirit speaking to me or is this all my fears and anxieties coming through and I'm really going to be naked in class tomorrow at school? You know, like, what, what is this? here's some tips that I have found as someone who is a dreamer, who I believe God speaks to me in dreams, tells, and some tips is keep a journal next to your bed. Um, I would encourage you to journal your dream. Keep a journal, a notepad, anything that you can write on. I tend to write on my soap cards. Um, first thing in the morning, I open up my Bible, and when I'm about to read, I write it on the back of my soap card. Uh, most dreams are lost in about the first 15 to 20 minutes of when you're awake. And so if the first thing you do is check your phone in the morning or check this, you're going to lose it immediately because someone else's content is what's going to be on your brain, not whatever it was that you dreamed. And so um, write down your dream. Even if it's a little crazy, put as much detail as you can or you want into it, but do me a favor, write it down. The second thing is interpret it. Uh, I know it's like, wait, interpret it? Ask God if he's trying to tell you something through this dream or not, right? Don't run to any book that's like the symbols of a dream mean this. And if you had a snake in it, it means these things. Those are all garbage. They mean nothing, okay? I'm just telling you that straight up. That you do not need a book to teach you how to interpret your dreams. Those are garbage. And, and don't please recognize God does not try to confuse us. He loves us. He's not going to give us a dream to make us spin out of control going, ah, most of the time when we have dreams, and especially through scripture, when they have dreams, they wake up and know what God wants. Sometimes they wrestle with it and what to do with it, but it's pretty clear. And so God is not trying to confuse us. And if a dream becomes overly complicated with all of these things, and you're trying to force it into mean something, it's Taco Bell, okay? It, it's probably not from God. Some dreams and visions, they inspire us to take action that day, and if they do, go for it. But some dreams and visions, this, uh, I, I've experienced this recently, where they've told me things about someone else, personal things about other people, and I'm like, what do I do with this? And instead of going to that person and be like, is this weird thing going on in your life? I have easily learned that the Lord somehow has been trying to put them on my heart, and I've missed it throughout the day, so he puts them on my heart at night, and now I know to be praying for them. And I spend time praying over them or praying with, you know, for them without them necessarily knowing. But it's all written down. Do you know why? Because I've seen it too many times that people come to me and they're like, Pastor Jimmy, this is what's going on. I feel like I've got this issue that I need prayed for. Would you pray for me? And it's like, oh, I've been. And they're like, what do you mean? And I pull out a soap card dated from weeks ago that says, I had a dream. And here, look. And not to weird them out or freak them out, but to remind them that God loves them that he saw what was going on in their life before, before they had the courage or anything to express it. Dreams and visions, they prepare our hearts for what's coming. And I told you, that's been happening way, for, way more for me. Um, and, and I will share one dream with you if, if you're cool with it. Um, <laughs> back last year in November, we were um, preparing for Christmas Eve and getting all that stuff done. 
and I was having a lot of dreams, and one of the dreams that I had at that moment was from, it was on uh, November 30th, and it was written in my guide uh, on my soap card, and I had a dream that Grace Church, that we partner with down in uh, Logan, and us were in this room partying and celebrating together. It was very clear it was two different churches, even though we were together as one, and it was just a very big um, celebration, and it was clear we were all here together and loved it, and I was like, that's so cool, and I wrote it down, and I just left it. A couple of weeks later, and, and I forgot about that dream completely. It was just on the card along with others, and I'm like, maybe Taco Bell, or just thank you, Lord, that we, we like being together. That's all. A couple of weeks later, Pastor Dave at that church calls me and says, hey, we have a problem. Our roof's coming in. And long story short, they could not do Christmas Eve at their church, and they were stuck. And without hesitation or thinking, I was like, yo, why don't you do it with us? We, we come over there all the time, but you can come celebrate with us. He's like, oh, that'd be great. Talked to his church. They were excited, and he calls me back and says, we're in. And that was on a Sunday morning, two, a week before Christmas Eve. I was on my way back home to King's Highway and just felt after a great service together, the Lord was like, told you. <laughs> what did I do? Like, what, what, what was wrong? You will worship together. And on Christmas Eve, we celebrated in here with their church and our church all together. I had no idea. And it was as clear as could be. God gave me a picture of what was coming. Not so that I could say or manipulate it to happen, but when that ask came, or their need came, the easy ask was yes, because the Lord had prepared my heart without me even knowing it through a dream, but I wrote it down, I prayed about it, and the best thing that you do with a dream is to interpret it is share it with two or three people that you know may be dreamers, and say, what do I do with this for accountability, for all of that? Some of us are going to be dreamers. Some of us should be dreamers, but we're not letting it happen, and we're scared. This is the mystery of Christ. And if a dream that you have is never supported through Scripture, just ignore it. If you have a dream that confirms, yes, I should go get divorced. Yes, I should cheat on my spouse. Yes, I should cheat on my taxes that way. This is, that's never. God will never contradict his Scriptures. You, you, you clear? So we can't just follow a dream because we had it, but that's why we write them down. We just don't follow visions when we have them, but we ask God, what are you doing in it? This is mystery and celebration, but because of that, enthusiasts were really uncomfortable around a lot of other people because that's just not the way they're wired. Can I invite you to stop judging the people around you that may not worship the same, that may not have those more mystical experience, and instead of judging them, invite them in to worship. Invite them in and pray for them. And for those of you who look at us like super weird, and thinking, that's just a show. I have no desire to dance for you unless we're at a wedding. But I will dance before my Lord and invite you to do that with me every week. I'll continue to ask God for dreams and visions and pray boldly when people need prayer. Pray for healing, pray for wisdom, pray for discernment, pray for everything. And if God chooses not to do it, that's not my problem. That's on him and his timing. But man, I will not stop. And I want to invite you to pray for miracles, pray for mystery. I have found that mystery even more through communion every single week together. And that may sound very odd through the ritual of communion. But I need you to be very careful as an enthusiast that like, okay, communion is here and we're doing this. It's just so routine. Enthusiasts can become 
experienced junkies, like, like spiritual drug addicts who run from one experience to the next, and when God is not giving you what you want, you're gonna go find another church where it's at. You're gonna go do this, and too many people leave churches that God has called them to because I'm just not feeling it. God's not called you to feel it all the time. He's called you to be faithful to him. You need the people around you who are aesthetics and contemplatives and naturalists to help you ground your faith and intellectuals to root your faith and they need you to encourage them. Before we take communion together, I like what Gary Thomas says to close Sacred Pathways chapter on this. He says, in a cynical and depressed world, enthusiasts point towards faith, mystery, and expectancy. When the situation seems impossible, enthusiasts say, now God's really gonna move. Would you join me in asking God to really move? And if you're like, what's that mean? I don't know, but I want it. I want more of God in this place. I want more of God in our life. That's what we just sang about, isn't it? And when we take communion, this is our way of simply expressing our commitment back to God to say somehow at a table with some juice and some crackers or prepackaged like little cups, somehow you've told us that this is your body and this is your blood. And that doesn't make any sense to me. But when I take this, I'm connected with you in a different way. When I take this, I remember your body being broken for my sin. I remember your, your, your body being broken for me and your blood being poured out for my sin. And, and how can your sacrifice cover all my sin? Like, do you know how much there is? This is the mystery of Christ. This is the goodness of God. This is worth celebrating every single week, amen? We don't do this just because it's a ritual. We do this because there's mystery in it. I need this. I think you do too. And so as a church, we celebrate communion today at an open table. And I would encourage you as we do, if you have placed your trust in Christ, this is a time where we celebrate our risen Savior. And if you've not placed your trust in Christ, I would encourage you, do not come and take communion. If your heart is not in that place, do not do this. Stay where you are. No one's going to shame you or judge you. That's not what this is about. But this is about eating and drinking the body and blood of Christ to understand this is a mystery, and I'm going to celebrate it every chance I get. Would you stand with me? Holy Spirit, in this moment, we invite you to reveal our hearts to us as to where we may need to repent of sin and confess sin and say, I, I, maybe I've, I do run from experience to experience, or maybe I've put you in a box and not, not let you touch the heart that I have, and, and I don't want to feel the, the feels with you, God. I don't want that, and I'd rather sit and just, no. Reveal to us what's going on in our hearts so that we can confess it to you. You would take that. And in doing so, Holy Spirit, fill us, rest on us, Allow this body and this blood to transform us to love deeper, Jesus. It's in your name we pray, amen.